0: Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. And this podcast will keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now here are your hosts, Drew and Jay.
1: Thanks, Ray. This is the Ray Wenderlich podcast. Welcome to episode nine for season eight. This episode was recorded on Monday, Monday, the 5th of November, 2018. I'm Drew Freeman, here with my high-but-not-maximum audio-quality Season 8 co-host, Jay Strong. Thanks,
2: Drew. We have a full show today. Our guests for this episode are Caroline Begby and Marius Horga, uh, co-authors of the book Metal by Tutorials. Marius is an app developer and Metal API blogger. He's also a computer scientist with more than a decade of experience with systems, support, integration, and development. You can often see him on Twitter talking about metal, GPGPU, games, and 3D graphics. When away from computers, he enjoys music, biking, or stargazing. Caroline is an indie iOS developer. When not developing, she's playing around with 2D and 3D animation software or learning Arduino and electronics. In her past, she's taught the elderly how to use their computers done marionette shows for preschools, and created accounting and stock control systems for mining companies.
1: We're also joined by Jesse Catterwall, tech editor for the book. Jesse, fascinated by technology consistently making learning easier, he enjoys exploring new techniques involving creative software and hardware combinations and imparting that experience to others. Along with his wife Katie, you'll find him doing so around here in the form of video tutorials jesse is also one of our wonderful friends from razeware guys thanks for showing up and this was wonderfully a difficult show for us to uh schedule as, as we all know because we've got people from pretty much everywhere jay myself and jesse i believe are all in the east coast of the united states carolyn
3: which time zone of australia are you in uh i'm not sure i'm brisbane Brisbane. I don't know. You know, don't know Australia, in, uh, Australian uh, Eastern Standard, I think. For, sorry. From
1: now on, <laughs> we'll just assume that Brisbane is the time zone. And Mars, where are you <laughs> located today? I'm. Uh, I'm in Chicago, Central Time. So it, it's it's been a bit of a struggle, but I mean, it's wonderful to be able to get everybody here for this book. Metal just continues to be something that Apple has found an amazing niche with. Uh, a way to get us to jump from OpenGL. To something that I'm finally seeing, uh, I think it was the very last uh, iPad introduction that the console people are finally now doing games, more games for Apple products. And that's fantastic. Metal is a deep topic. Where do we want to start?
4: So we have metal for uh, more than four years now. Mm -hmm. Metal is a a low level framework or API, if you want, uh, for GPU programming. It's a little bit different than any other frameworks in the sense that it's using both Swift or Objective-C, but also C++, a C++-based derivation language called Metal Shading Language. This is pretty much like OpenGLs, uh, GLSL language that was also C-based. It's low level because it uh, all talks almost uh, directly to the GPU. There's only like a little layer left to the bare metal. On the other hand, metal is also a low overhead API. And what that means is, uh, since I mentioned OpenGL before, in OpenGL, the user was doing everything at runtime and that was creating a lot of performance issues in the past. With metal, you can compile most of the resources and state validation in the beginning, and then just use the compiled code, uh, which is mostly shaders. Those are compiled in the beginning. Quick question. Was,
1: was Metal,
4: now, and this may be just a, a hardware
1: curiosity, was Metal the necessary ticket to allow the Apple products to have the external GPUs? It, w- was, was Metal sort of that, that tool that helped us get there? And that question, obviously, for any of
4: you. Um... I think external GPUs works with any GPU framework or language. Possibly it it makes it easier to use external GPUs. Well, I know
1: that the API itself gives you a, a well, maybe maybe the API for using the GPUs, the external GPUs, is that part of Metal or is that something separate?
4: Um, I think the operating system detects the external GPU as a new hardware piece that you're attaching to your machine and then of course, uh, y- you've got metal to talk to it. That's the only way to access it. Okay, so we got a, a rough idea of metal,
1: Marius. Obviously, and this is important because uh, I've I've looked through. i I, I I've been. Playing with Metal, I'm more of a top level guy, but I have I've I've gone through Carolyn's tutorials, and and I'm and I'm looking forward to reading the the tutorials book. Is it time to give up on OpenGL? Why 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 should we? What what is the need to go to Metal? What what advantages do you have for taking that now?
4: It is the time, and uh, one of the reason is because Apple tells us to do that. <laughs> <laughs> They warned us that it's becoming deprecated. It's going to be there for like maybe a couple more years. I don't know how long, but um, on the Apple website, we already have uh, uh, directions and uh, uh, documentation on how to transition our code from OpenGL to Metal. And Marius Marius has just proven that 10
1: years of experience, he knows how Apple works. And that's when Apple says, we suggest you do X. That's Apple's way of saying, go do X or be left behind. Very true. And and you hit that on the nose when when Apple says, go do that.
2: Yes. Uh, While I was reading about OpenGL and Metal, um, some people say that Metal was built for speed, but OpenGL was built for flexibility. Do you feel like... we're limited by Metal uh, besides the fact that it's mainly for Macs. Are there
4: other things that
2: um, OpenGL is better
4: at and that we're missing out on maybe? Actually, it's the other way around. Oh. I, I mentioned in the beginning that Metal is low level, it's low overhead, and there was one more thing I didn't say about it. It's a unified API. So what that means is not only it does graphics, but it also does uh, compute tasks such as image processing uh Machine learning and metrics, cal- calculations and so on and so forth. So it's definitely built for both speed and throughput. So um, you can you can use it for for a fast computation task or you can use it for huge amounts of data processing. It works in both ways.
3: Also openGL is OpenGL is really, really old. So the APIs it's using, you know, um, they're really out of date.
4: Not only that, but Apple does one more thing here. So what they do is they will not give us a new driver for OpenGL. So that means your computer will talk to the GPU on a driver that is maybe two years old or three years old. And uh, in, in the world of GPUs, you need to update the driver maybe not every month, but at least like three, four times a year to keep it current and at maximum capacity with the framework new features.
1: There's a couple of
4: phrases and terms that we're going to be throwing around
1: repeatedly. And I'd love to get a nice, succinct way of talking about these specific terms. And that is the pipeline and the shader. Because I I admit, when I hear shader, I only think of shading. And I know that there's so much more involved with it.
3: Uh, So the Metal Pipeline is a series of GPU stages. So you set up your pipeline options before you start drawing anything. And the pipeline stages might be something like um, set up your two shader functions, which I'll come back to. You set up whether you want blending on the GPU. You set up whether you want tessellation, for example. Tessellation is where you create uh, triangles on the GPU. So you set up a pipeline for Every single one of the very various drawing, if you're, if you're drawing various objects, you'll need to have multiple pipelines for each object, depending on what you want them to do. So you set up all your pipelines to start, and then when you draw the objects, you pull in this pipeline that you've set up and send it to the GPU. And so the GPU then um, sets all its states all at once, and it knows exactly what shading functions it's going to going to call. And there are two shading functions that you you have access to uh, in 3D rendering. Well, three, but two mainly. Um, One for setting the positions of the 3D model. So you you take each vertex, and a vertex is just a a 3D point in space. And so you take this 3D vertex and make it into a 2D representation to show on the screen. So that's called the vertex function. And the rasterizer takes the output of the vertex function and turns them all into little triangles. And then the second shader function comes in to shade each pixel of those flattened triangles
1: i i enjoyed the fact that you said there were two well sort of three it it, it always feels like the monty python routine our three shader functions i mean four four shader so I, I get the impression that there, there there are the two primaries but i also get the impression that there is like one or two very very specific, minor... Remember
4: we said in the beginning metal is a unified language?
3: Yeah, I was referring to the kernel or compute function which you can also use during the 3D rendering because you might want to, when you're setting up tessellation you would go through a kernel function. So there are three functions but primarily if you're just rendering a simple object you only need the two vertex and um, sh- uh, fragment functions I have to
1: step back and having gone through uh, Carolyn's uh, in original tutorials there's a, a process of wrapping your mind around the actual realization of that concept of millions of functions a second because as you go through these shader functions you you feel like there's uh, you, you feel like how you know I'm doing this for this object, and I'm doing this for this object, and it's just so much code, and wrapping my head around that. Uh, Carolyn, you had something you wanted to add there.
3: Yes, I meant to say that um, one of the great things about rendering on the GPU is because three D models are made up of sometimes millions of vertices. You you don't want to process each vertex one by one, so that's why you put them onto the onto the GPU because the GPU can then um, with its with all its many cores, Marius will be able to tell us you know, very more about the cores, maybe. Um, so with all its multiple cores, it can pr- uh, process each vertex simultaneously. And that's why we render on the GPU rather than the CPU.
0: Caroline said shader to start off with and then function later on. I think, I don't, I think you asked about shader to begin with. And some people listening might be confused by the term shader versus the three types of functions that we have. Uh, For me, I,
3: I... I tend to use them simultaneously. So,
0: and I do too, but I think a lot of people who are new to this might not know why is it called a shader? Because historically, that's all that you could really do was shade, meaning take some, you would take a vertex and you would make it lighter or darker based on the lighting information that you had. That's basically all you could do in a shader. But nowadays... The vertex shader allows you to position vertices and also you know send along color data as you used to be able to do and you can do vertex lighting, but we also can do things per fragment, which is uh simplify if you simplify that it's basically a per pixel operation
1: and one of the interesting things is we talk about vertex uh, vertices or uh, and vertex and it wasn't until I actually sat down with this because I always thought of three d 3D- uh, animation drawing and the graphics as triangles not vertexes and it was that realization that you actually have the three vertexes or vertices and that you actually can influence things from the corners rather than as a whole triangle if i if i'm understanding that correctly
0: i think interpolation is the key to understand the data is in the vertices but then you have rasterization which i think Amarius is going to talk about a little later and that's why we can see things in the end basically because of all the interpolation happening between the vertices
1: it's a concept of just trying to picture the the way that i i pictured it at its most simple uh, when I was thinking about vertices was just thinking about something like, for people who play D&D, something like a 20-sided die or something that was basically just a very simple block made out of triangular faces.
3: That's not that's interesting because that's not how I picture a 3D model. I always picture it as like cloud points. Um, so your model is, uh, if you were able to model something really uh, thoroughly, as in the real world, you'd need a gazillion points to be able to model the outside of it. Um, so what you do is reduce those number of points to the amount, number of points you can actually process. So the more, the fewer points you have, the lower poly the um, object will be, and not so precise and um,
1: real-world. So think of it from the point of view of the points, not the faces.
3: Yeah, but it depends at what stage you're at, because you're throwing points at the GPU to start with. Mm-hmm. and though, But those points are... Um, pretty much, I mean, they're in a stream. So the GPU can then take those points and assemble them.
1: And of course, these points are basically XYZ points in three-dimensional space.
3: Yes, which could be anywhere in the universe. You you decide what, what coordinate system you want to use.
1: I, I often talk about a, a book that I, I had when I first started programming and I, I always pull the old stuff here. The, it was a book for uh, graphic programming for the Apple II, but there was an entire section of that on matrix mathematics and matrix transformations, the the four-by-four four matrices, where it would then show you how to do things like skew and how the math worked beyond that and how to get a point of reference to it. Um, and it's stunning that every now and then, I, I while I'm looking at a lot of this metal stuff, that that book always comes back, and I I can still just understand some of the the concepts of of how that works. Because once you get into a lot of what's going on with the shaders, you start dealing with things like how the lights bounce and how things reflect light if they're possibly covered by another piece of the model.
4: Right. Um, So um, thinking back in time, uh, the way graphics were being done Uh, on Apple II and similar computers from that era was on CPU exclusively. So we have the math since forever, I don't know, from the 70s. uh, And um, it was called a software renderer back then. We did not have uh, hardware dedicated to this sort of uh, uh, task, but uh, I think the... Big revolution came in the 90s, early 90s. When uh, uh, I think it was uh, 3Dfx was the name of that company back then. Mm-hmm. They they came with the first GPU that was able to do transform and lighting. Uh, that was uh, being accelerated in hardware, and, and that was the first time you could do something that was not on the CPU. And then since then everything exploded into what we do today yeah well,
1: i while i assume i mean everything that that we talk about with medelees talking about the the gpu I mean, theoretically, all of it could be done in the CPU, but it's a question of now the GPU is an actual piece of hardware dedicated to be able to run small functions in parallel very quickly, whereas the CPU is designed to do more complex functions and not necessarily in serial. Right. So let's let's talk about creating a shader. What would be a good example of a simple shader?
0: I think the most important shader is the vertex shader, which will take... You will so you'll make create a model probably in a 3D modeling app generally, although you can create primitives, uh, primitives just with the metal API. So, something like Blender, right? So, you'll create something in Blender and you'll be working in a coordinate space, and it's the space of the model you're working in. But then you can take that model and then move it around in the world, and then the camera will see that world, and then eventually you're going to have that show up on your screen. So, you have this series of transformations where. You, you have mo- your model defined in its own coordinate space, but you need to get it into a coordinate space with other models that are going to form a scene. And so that is the main job of the vertex shader, I'd say. <laughs> so so that's, that's probably the most important thing that any shader does. Uh, of course, without, with, with just having positions, uh, that's not going to be very useful because you want to be able to see the model as well. So you need a fragment shader, and you can just have a solid color um, that would probably be the simplest shader you could write. And with that and the correct positions, you could at least know if the model's in the right place on uh, in your scene on screen. Talk to me about that
1: shader language, because it's not Swift.
0: So I think it's, it, Marius, is it C++ 14, 17? It's a, basically a subset of C++, correct? Yes, it's, uh, I think it's 14. You can't, yeah. If you just treat it like C++ without working with uh the C++ standard library that's probably a good way to think about it. Well that sounds like a bonus. <laughs> um it means it's designed for speed not so much to be, you know, you're not doing the same thing as you would be with Swift or Objective C for example. Okay.
1: So we have the object or the the shape um, resource that we've created in Blender which in itself really is just a series of XYZ points. The vertex shader which is effectively Colouring in the points so as to say, the points need to move, and then the fragment shader is basically saying, okay, now here's how we colour in the, frag- the in the the vertices, the color in vertices, the colour in the model.
3: By the time you get to the fragment shader, though, you're not working in vertices anymore. The, the rasterizer's done its job of turning those positioned vertices into triangles, the, and the rasterizer will um, flatten those triangles, and you'll only get uh, the fragment shader called on the pixels that you can see on the screen. So there's a lot
1: that goes into creating these shaders and they are amazingly powerful. We're going to take a break for a moment, but when we come back, the obvious question we have next is, well, how do you make sure your shader is doing what you want it to do? How do you actually debug something that small doing so much so fast? And we'll talk about that coming up in the next half.
4: And
2: welcome back to the second half of the show. A special thank you to all of our guests here tonight. So when we left off,
1: we talked about what goes into shaders and what shaders are. It's not like I can just step through this in Xcode, is it?
3: Well, actually, yes, you can, as of 2018 WWDC. We love you, Apple! <laughs> 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 because the GPU is is kind of hidden and you don't really know what's going on it going in, in on inside it. And um so, whereas in, on the CPU, can, you can do the breakpoints and you can just step through code, and it was all very much easier, but um, on the Xcode now has this separate debugging process where you can press a button and capture a frame. So, when you look at that frame, you can see everything that's on the GPU. You can see all the memory buffers. You can see all the textures it's got there. You can actually look at your shader code. For that particular frame and for that particular thing that you're drawing. And so then you can go one step deeper as of now into that shader code and you can see what the GPU is, how the GPU has interpreted that and the actual values it's put in there. So you can't actually step through the code as it's running, but you can take a frame and see all the values. That the GPU has worked out that the shaders should be, and this is this is fantastic for if you're working out distances from the camera because I never get that right first time and <laughs> you know um, one of the, one of the ways of debugging that I used to do was return a value as a color, as Jesse was explaining earlier, so I would take my calculated position and return it as a color, and the color of the 3D model with that particular cuddle to color to see if the to see if the distance was actually working but now breaking it, breaking out this particular frame where it, where it's calculated you can see the actual values and so for each line of the shader it looks it looks just like a playground that you've just run where each value is on the right hand side of the playground the uh shader debugger looks exactly like that. It's
0: so much nicer than it used to be. I mean, if you look up old articles on shader debugging, what Caroline said about, you know, outputting a color or whatever you need to debug, that's what shader debugging had
1: been. So basically, if I had like wow. a, a, a round thing, I'd say, OK, if the round thing is going to be in this sort of number at this time, make it red. If it's going to be at this number, make it orange. And that way, when I run it, I can see, OK, it's orange. So That means the numbers probably right about here for now. And, and you can you can bubble. And then I would
0: you, use the eyedropper tool, you know, and go into Photoshop and, you know, that's <laughs> and the. Yeah, it was a nightmare, basically. It took a long time anyway.
1: Now, when you yes. say capturing a frame, is that basically like you getting almost like a little movie and you're scrubbing across it and saying this, here's what I want to know at this time?
3: No. Uh, basically, you you run your app and then you press capture, and it's the frame that it's running at the moment although I believe that you can specify which particular frame while you're running it. Is that true, Marius? I think you just
4: capture the frame, which is happening at that exact millisecond, but you do capture all of the objects that it comes with, like uh, textures and uh, uh, shaders and everything that's associated with with that
1: pipeline. But it does sound like you're still sort of throwing a dart at a dartboard to get the frame. In other words, if I just hit pause while I'm running a standard iOS app, I'm going to wind up somewhere deep in the assembly language stack as opposed to if I set a breakpoint saying stop on this command so I'm higher in the stack. Is it the same way when you basically say I want to look at this frame you're going to go I'm going to grab uh, that frame?
3: I thought there was some API that I don't know of where you can actually capture a particular frame that you can set it up to say capture this from here. I could be absolutely out on on that. There. I've never used it. I just captured the frame.
4: Right. I mean the- The app is running all the time, and you just press capture uh, at a random point during runtime.
0: I think you have to put yourself into a different mindset when you're capturing a GPU frame because it's a highly parallel operation. So, like, let's say you're debugging map or even a for loop in Swift. That... Has the potential at some point to maybe be parallelized, but it's generally going to be serial. You're going to, if you put a breakpoint in that and then continue, you'll see it run once for every time that you expect. But on the GPU, you're not having that same kind of serial operation. Everything's happening at once, so you'll be able to see multiple pixels. You'll be able to see multiple vertices. I don't know what if there's a term terminology for that different mindset, but it's not it's not exactly the same sort of debugging operation.
3: So, for example, for compute, which a compute kernel function, which um, is what you could translate your for loop into, instead of um, serially going through the for loop, you can make each one of those occurrences a thread. And each thread is then parallelized um, on the GPU. And when you when you pause on a particular frame that and that compute shader is running, then you can look at the values produced in each of those threads.
1: I do find that, and having gone through a few of the the tutorials, that there really is. It's not just a question of learning the APIs, but there is, and it's such a wonderful world. Word that we thank Heinlein for there's a grok to this, meaning you really have to be able to wrap your head conceptually around the entire universe of this kind of development.
3: Yes, I think I think so. But, um, I used to animate in 2D. And so uh, when you animate in 2D, you, you'd like draw a picture and then you can split it up and make different joints and everything. And then I um, started creating 3D models. And that was, as you say, it's grokking a different thing because you suddenly realize that a face isn't actually flat. You actually, a face is, is much deeper than you think it is when you're, when you're drawing it. So, um, you know, you're drawing a face in 2D. You, you're not conceptually thinking, well, I'm not because I'm not an artist, I suppose, but I'm not thinking in 3D when I'm drawing a face on a piece of paper. And so when I moved into 3D, it took me a while to understand 3D space. Which sounds really kind of silly, but it did take me a while to understand that when I was modeling my faces, they turned out to be really flat. Would it be
1: worth, uh, as uh, an experiment or for somebody learning, to try to animate something that would be conceptually 2D but using the 3D mindset? I'm taking sort of a, a flatland approach to this to understand but not have so much flying around to just basically say, okay, I'm gonna work in squares and hexagons, but. At some point, I'm going to have something move into the three-dimensional space, so I just program it as if I was programming everything in 3D, or is that way off the mark from how you might go about trying to understand some of this?
3: Well, I think metal's really designed, the metal is really designed for 3D. I mean, you can t- you can make z- the Z value zero, so you don't have to deal with that, but I think you still have to grok the mindset. So
1: now that we have that feeling of being able to, to grab the individual frames and see that, Let's roll back to the next thing, and that is we want this complex amount of thing to occur in such a way that doesn't get glitchy for the end run. So now we have a way of debugging it. Can you talk about some of the things that are necessary to make sure it's running to speed well and how you work on that?
4: Most of the uh, profiling uh, tools, uh, we've got, I think even since 2014, but the most impressive one we got This year was uh, the shader profiler, which um, uh, has most of the features for iOS only. So for example, uh, you can see inside a a shader function on each line, the percentage of time it will take to complete. You can tweak it in real time, modify that variable, for example, replace a division, which is a really high, a costly uh, operation, replace it with a shift or something else, save the shader life, reload it without taking a new uh, GPU capture frame and see that percentage going down. So that's amazing. Uh, one other tool for profiling is the, the metal system trace. This belongs to instruments. so. Obviously, it's uh, outside of Xcode. But an interesting feature that we got recently is triggering the metal system trace with a breakpoint. So you just have this hunch that maybe this draw call uh, is stalling or it's causing a lot of performance issues. You put a breakpoint there, edit that breakpoint. There's an option to trigger a metal system trace in the uh, breakpoint options. When you run the project, it's going to stop there and uh, launch a metal system trace, which has a really advanced uh, uh, graph timeline of your application running. You can record for a few seconds uh, and then take a look at pipelines Take a look at resources. Take a look at views. Maybe there is something with the view, uh, such as the drawable being held by a different process and it's not free for you to render, and so on and so forth. Um, oh, uh, for for iOS, you can hover over the line I- inside the shader and you get a nice pie chart showing you uh, what took most of the time, like uh, loading and sorting operations, LAU operations, which are math operations that um, uh, uh, translate to calculations, uh, or driver time, and so on and so forth.
1: I've got an understanding of pipeline. I've got an understanding of the shaders. I see that there are the new tools, which is really wonderful for uh, for debugging and improved tools for profiling. Where do we typically start? I mean, you've got so many different things. you got building these um, models uh, in a 3D application. If I'm getting my feet wet and I'm bitten by this bug, and I, I want to actually digress for a second and say, if I remember correctly, Metal iOS, metal, Mac, they're the same metal, is that correct? None of this ES anymore, we're for GL. We've got, if it runs on one, it's running on all. Correct. And that's cool. So I, I've been bitten by the bug. I, I'm ready to, to build breakout in 3D. And Carolyn is smiling at me because I believe that was her old tutorial. But what what's a good way to start?
3: Well, personally, I would actually start with building the models and get a feel for 3D space. And understand what vertices are and understand what normals are, Cre- create a normal map. So I'd download Blender, or if I wanted to spend some money, maybe Cheetah 3D or Maya LT. And just make some models, and that because behind the scenes of the model of what you see on the screen, they're doing exactly the same thing that presumably you want to do. You, they're rendering three D models on the screen behind the scenes. Can
1: you talk? Uh, I just want to interrupt you and ask you. You had said understanding what normals are. Can you give me a quick definition of normals?
3: That's the way the vert- the face is pointing, at, or or the point or the vertex is pointing. So if you have a cube, each face points in a different direction. And the normal for each of those faces is actually pointing directly out at um, 90 degrees from the face. So all of those normals will be at 90 degrees, even though they're all pointing in different directions.
1: That becomes really effective for lighting, if I remember correctly.
3: Well, you need normal, you need to know, for lighting, you need to know which way, which direction the face is pointing, because if it's pointing away from the light, you want to make it darker, so you work. So you look at the, the normals for each vertex, and then um, work out the lighting from that. You generally you can do lighting in the vertex shader, but generally you'd do the, the the lighting in the fragment shader. And I don't think we've actually talked about the interpolation that happens between the vertex and the fragment shader. Um, stepping back a bit. We were talking about um, the pipeline. Mm-hmm. And when you send, wh- when you go through the rasterizer, there's actually an interpolation that happens. So for example, if you're rendering a single triangle, you have three vertices, but each fragment or um, that is rendered in the fragment shader is actually interpolated from the points of those three, the edges of those th- uh, triangles. So if you have a normal um, assigned to a particular vertex, by the time it gets to the fragment shader, you—it's that normal in the fragment shader is interpolated between the three v- normals of the vertices. I
1: remember a, a thing where I, I'd mentioned earlier the concept of uh, interpolating a, a color that would start at each vertice and then the colors would basically blend as they approached the other vertice.
3: Vertex. That's if you assign a vertex a color. Yeah. Yes. So, but um, it's not just colors, it's normals, it's anything that, any data that's attached to a vertex, Mm -hmm. for example, a normal or a color, or a UV coordinate, a texture coordinate, which I don't think we've talked about UVs, um, but any of those um, are, are assigned to a particular vertex. And then when the rasterizer has the, three vertices for its triangle uh, and creates all the fragments for the triangle. Each fragment is interpolated from the distance between each vertex.
1: What is a UV? Uh,
3: When you create a 3D model, you're creating all these vertices and moving them around in 3D space. And then you want to texture them. You don't just want plain colors. You want to assign a texture to it. So um, you would... you would want to have a 2D texture mapped onto a 3D object. So in your, um, in your 3D app, such as Blender, you would flatten your 3D object, which is a bit harder than it seems. Like with a cube, you can flatten it by cutting it up. You can cut down a particular edge and open it up. But if, you have, if you're rendering a rabbit, then you have to cut it in multiple places to flatten it onto a 2D, into two dimensions. But once you've done that, you've put all your 3D vertices into a two-dimensional flat field. You can then print out or or create a texture that has all those vertices mapped on it and take that map into Photoshop or another texturing program to paint onto that texture, which you can then... Put it, send to the fragment shader, which puts it back into the right position onto the three D model.
0: So
1: I've, I've got to ask this question, and that is, if I have a three D object that actually part of it sits in front of another part of it. Well,
3: that that's part of the unwrapping. Um, when you create your, when you cut your edges, you would make sure that you cut in certain positions so that you can pull it open. So, so like if you're UV te- texturing a head. You might cut a line down the back of the head and pull it open pull it open from the back and stretch it out into a big round flat shape. It sounded like you were describing a horror movie just for a second. <laughs> I was just thinking that, yes. I was trying to actually think of a horror movie where they'd done that, but I don't watch them.
1: <laughs> so you went with head and I was so hoping you'd go with something like say, oh, I don't know, a teapot. And the reason obviously a couple of people left, the reason I bring up teapot is was that not the that was one of the original ex- th- 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 proof of concept for 3D drawing? The Utah teapot? Yeah. That you're talking about? Yeah.
0: We'll we'll have the Utah teapot in the sh- in the show notes. One one thing Caroline did not go over is why it's called why they're called UVs? I, I think that we have we have them being called UVs because X, y, Z, and W are already being used, and then those <laughs> came beforehand. That's what I've read. It seems to make sense, but we needed you know two dimensions of data. So there you have it in the shader, though, um, I was talking earlier about how we have these uh, four component vectors, and you have two options in metal. You can either refer to the components as X, Y, Z, and W, or R, G, B, and A. Which I, don't, I don't think I mentioned that before, but another way you know, to map between colors and positions or directions. Um, and there is no U and V available. There, in OpenGL, we had STPQ, but that didn't translate over to metal. Mm. I, never, I never used them. I always used X, Y, Z. That kind of
1: thing. And this takes you all the way back to Fortran and why integers were (laughs) integer loops were i through n uh, because it was the first two letters of integer. (laughs) This is a really, it's not. A light topic it's not one to be entered into thinking i'm just gonna jump in and, and write this kind of stuff but having looked at this material all three of you have done absolutely phenomenal work in i don't want to say hand-holding but in taking us in without the kicking and the screaming and um metal by tutorials did it just have another revision
3: come out it's in its first release now because it's completed so it was coming out in early releases but it's now complete
1: great and that's yes. obviously available at raywenderlich.com. We'll have the link to that in the show notes. Jesse, Marius, Carolyn, knowing that you're all coming in from different times and time frames, uh, some of us were... At- coming up on 10 p.m. Some of us were coming up on 11 a.m. at this point. And that on top of the fact that clocks changed in some of these countries. I really appreciate all of you guys coming together to do this show. And as always, if you're listening to the show and you have questions, you can either go to the forum that's available for the book. You can go to the forum that's available for this episode. Thank you guys so much for doing this with us today.
3: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: for having us. That is going to wrap things up for this episode. We will be doing another episode in just a few weeks. And until then, it is time for us to turn back to the Emerald Castle. Ray, back to you.
0: And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the RayWendelich.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.